What a great, great truth to start our morning with. Go ahead and grab a seat. Man, what a, whew. That's why, uh, that's why we come right there. It's just a reminder that God is with us. His love unfailing, that uh, we are unshaken when we're in him. Oh, Overleg, I love you. My name's Mike, one of the pastors on the team. Why don't you grab your notes out of your handout? We are wrapping up a series today on the book of Acts. I know many, many hundreds of Overlakers have been reading through the book of Acts this month of July. If you have not, jump in. Powerful, powerful book. And as you read through, and maybe as you've been tracking through this series, there are a couple of truths that we've been trying to tease out of this thing so that you see it really, really clearly again and again through the pages of the book of Acts. And if you're filling in the blanks, the first one really, really clearly is that Acts is the story of the church powered by God's Spirit. So as you read through the pages of that book, you'll see instance after instance. You'll see uh, things that we would talk about as miraculous. You'll see things that we would talk about as powerful. You'll see the kingdom of God revealed in just beautiful uh, ways. And, and, And as you read through those pages, understand it is God's spirit behind that that's the motivating, the the engine behind what's happening in the pages of the book of Acts. That first church experience is all powered by the Holy Spirit of God. But it brings us to the next truth, very, very true. It is that the power source of the church in Acts is the power source of the church today. In other words, it wasn't that that was for one time and one dispensation or one epoch, one era, and that we are in this other totally different thing, far diminished. It's that, no, no, what you read in the pages of the book of Acts, the kingdom powerfully going forth, that the people of God, the followers of Jesus being motivated and empowered in this beautiful way by God's spirit, that still happens today. That's exactly what we see. That's exactly what we experience. Um, Overlake, we see it at Overlake. We see all kinds of expression in our local church body. But even as we go around the world, we, we visit our partners or, you know, in different countries and, and even our partners locally. We just see that God is still on the move. And, and what we read in the book of Acts, that is still happening. The kingdom is breaking forth all over. So it's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. What I want to do is I want to go back just a little bit. Last week, we talked about this transformation that happened in a guy named Saul, that he, he was converted and transformed from Saul into the apostle Paul. And I want to focus on some of the words that Jesus actually said. Here we are in Acts 9, 15, and this is what the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings. You might want to circle that phrase, to Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So what Jesus wanted is he wanted Paul to be his chosen instrument. This is my prize violin that I am going to play the beautiful melody of my love for the entire world through the person of Jesus Christ, and that he's going to be my instrument, and we're going to take it to the entire Gentile world. Quick definition, there were sort of two worlds, you know, the world divided into two. There was the Jewish world, and then everybody else were called Gentiles. So here's the Jewish world located in Israel, and then literally everyone else, everywhere else is the Gentile world. That's whom Paul is going to be sent to by Jesus, and to kings. 
So Paul's going to have the opportunity to speak in front of governors and regents of geographical areas, uh, kings of smaller sort of provinces, and then ultimately Caesar himself. So, so both of these things are going to become true. And then there's that pesky little line, Jesus says, and I will show him how much he must suffer. We don't like that. Right? That's the kind of verse that we tend to skip right on over with our American eyes. We're like, oh, God chose an instrument. He's going to the Gentiles. Oh, to kings. That sounds really nice. Uh, suffer. Well, I didn't read that, you know, and you just keep going. But Paul did suffer, right? Paul uh, suffered, and, and he suffered with slow Wi-Fi connection and bad service at restaurants. He suffered because he didn't catch some green lights, and the hotels had some bad pillows. One of the two had bed bugs. The DVR set didn't record the end of the soccer match. His iPod screen cracked. Someone said, happy holidays to him instead of Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, those are the ways we suffer, Right? Right, but the Apostle Paul, no, he, he actually suffered. He, he really did suffer. And, and there are these places where he suffered, um, and he gives us a list. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and following, he says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The reason why they had that, that particular punishment is because they reckoned that the full 40 lashes would kill a person. The lashes, by the way, each of these whips uh, had little chunks of glass and rock at the end of it. So, so you know, the, the, the skin would be flayed open. And, and five different times that happened to Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. By the way, that's with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's a list, right? That is, that's suffering, and, and you know, it, it, what it brings to me this recognition that, that suffering and victory, they're not polar opposites, are they? That suffering and victory, they actually kind of sit side by side on the shelf. Because one of the things that we see, what, uh, the, the victory through Paul's life, as he was empowered by God's Spirit, is that Paul preaches and plants churches on this major stretch of, of the known world at the time. And on all these Roman roads and all these towns like Neapolis and Philippi, uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessaloniki, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Caesarea. It's not an exhaustive list, but I just share that with you to say, Paul was busy killing it for the gospel. Right? He, Paul had a lot of victory flowing through his ministry and his faithfulness to Jesus. And, and so it's not that the suffering undid the victory. It's not that the victory overwhelmed the suffering. They actually kind of sit side by side on the shelf in Paul's life. And it's hard for us to kind of get our minds around that. But that, that is the case in the scripture. And I want to jump into this first part, this idea of shipwreck. A little bit of background. Paul 
has taken his message to the Gentiles, and now he is being prosecuted by the Jewish leaders. They are very unhappy with Paul because he was a Jewish leader, but now he follows Jesus. And he was preaching a strict adherence to the Jewish traditions and laws, but now he's saying, no, no, Jesus is the only way. And they do not want to hear that message, and so they are prosecuting him. They want him dead. They don't want him in jail. They don't want him shut up. They want him killed. And uh, as a Roman citizen, Paul has now appealed to Caesar, which means he is being taken to court to stand in front of Caesar in Rome. Again, Paul has already speak, spoken to governors about Jesus. Paul has already preached to kings about Jesus. But now he's going to stand in front of the most powerful king on planet Earth at the time. And he's going to tell Caesar about the king of kings, Jesus. So it's interesting to think what might be going on in Paul's heart at this time. Because on the one hand, he's really excited that he's going on his way in transport to speak in front of Caesar. On the other hand, he looks at his chains and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm a prisoner here. And, and so that's the situation that they find themselves in. They're being taken, Paul's being taken by ship to Rome. It says this in Acts 27, verse 9 through 11. By the way, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We'll be in 27 and 28 today. It says, we had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and to the owner than to Paul. Well, that's curious. Why would they listen more to the captain than to Paul? Oh, because he's their captain. And as far as we know, Paul has never sailed a ship in his life. Or if he has, we've just known that he's had three shipwrecks. So that's not a, a you know, rousing endorsement. And, and not only that, but, but so, so there's the captain, but, but Paul is a prisoner in transport. And, and you just sort of think about, you know, common sense reality. Like if you're a, a peace officer transporting a prisoner and it looks like there's bad weather ahead, do you turn to the prisoner and say, what shall we do? That has never happened in the history of the world, by the way. So, of course, they're going to listen to the captain because it makes sense, because he's the one in authority, because he's the one with the experience, because actually there's this chain of command thing, and so it's even easier for me to listen to the captain rather to the, than to this prisoner who might have an opinion about the weather. Are you tracking with me on this? Yeah. However, in this scenario, Paul had a word from God. And God was actually trying to spare this ship from shipwreck. And so there was this sort of revealed truth that was coming to these officers on the ship, but they couldn't hear it because they were too busy and had too much tradition listening to their captain. Does this make sense? It brings us to a question, who's the captain in my life? Who, who is the captain of my life and whose voice is the most powerful, the, the voice that I listen to the most. Now, please understand, this could be a, a, a voice that has always been a wise voice in your life or a conventional voice in your life. It could be that, that it's, it's served you well to listen to this captain for the long haul. 
What I'm trying to get you to see is that occasionally God will circumvent sort of established traditional wisdom and he will bring a word to you when he's trying to spare you a shipwreck. And are you willing to listen to God in those moments? Or are we so tied in with prudence? Are we so tied in with our tradition? Are we so tied in with the captains that we've been following? Does this make sense? I mean, again, I'm not telling you we reject all captains. I'm just saying that in our intimacy with the Lord, we've got to be willing to listen to him, even when it comes against conventional wisdom. And that's what Paul was trying to bring. Okay, let's get into the next passage here, verse 20. It says, the terrible storm raged for many days. So Paul knew it. There was a storm coming. This is what happens now. They're in a terrible storm, raging for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. How much hope was gone? All hope was gone. That's right. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me. Oh, I love guys like that, don't you? Hey, guys, gather around. Remember me, the one who was right? And they're like, you were right, but I want to punch you. You know, like, yeah, okay, he's right. Uh, you know, a little salt on the wound here. You should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. But look what he says. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. <laughs> I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, right? And it, it, what's interesting to me is, you know, the first thing he does is he reminds them he was right. Now, it, it, I, I don't think that was just like um, salt on their wound. I really don't. I think what he was trying to do was establish some credibility in front of them. I think what he was trying to say is, look, we, we've, we've had this conversation before, and I actually did have a word for you. Remember that? But so in the midst of that, do you remember that there is some authority that comes with me, you know, and it's not mine, it's, it's from God, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to have courage poured into you right now. And what Paul does is he spends that time encouraging them, literally pouring courage into them. He says it a couple of times, take courage, he says. Why does he say that? Because how much hope did they have? None. They had no, no hope. It wasn't a little hope. They hadn't lost most of their hope. They had no hope. We're going to die. Paul says, take courage. You're not going to die. In fact, why don't we have some time? Let's eat together. Why don't you have your strength renewed? It's going it's to be important. You're going to need it. He says, take courage. None of you are going to die. Not even one of us. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose the cargo. But you are going to survive. Why? Because I believe God. And they listened to him. It's funny, when, when Paul brought the, hey, there's a storm ahead, bad news kind of a message, they didn't listen to him. But now he's like, you're all going to live. They're like, he's my best friend, you know. We love him. Let's listen to him. And so they do, they do what he says. Now, here's what I want to challenge you. I want you to think about it for a moment from Paul's perspective, if you will. Okay, just think about now you're, you're Paul on the ship. You are in the same storm that they're in. 
You are just as seasick as they are. You're just as exhausted as they are. You haven't eaten for as long as they haven't eaten. Are you tracking with me? You're right in the middle of a really tough situation. Not only that, but you already tried once to get their attention. You already warned them that this was going to happen, and they didn't listen. So you've been shut down and marginalized already as a prisoner. And yet, even though Paul's in the same situation that they're in, and even though Paul has already been ignored once, what do we see Paul doing? We see him leading well and pouring courage into them. Brings me to a thing. This is actually what I find personally challenging out of this passage. How do I lead in the midst of a shipwreck? How am I leading in the midst of a shipwreck? How do you lead? See, you have influence in your world. You have influence over your family. You have influence with your spouse. You have influence with um, your peer group. You have influence in your workplace or your classroom. You have influence in your neighborhood. You've got influence and people are watching your life. And in the midst of a shipwreck, what are they seeing? Are you inspiring others to greatness? Are you pouring courage in, even though it looks like the ship is going to go down? Are you the one who's saying, take courage? Or are you the one with your hands waving above your head saying, why, you know, whoa, we're going to die. I'm really hungry and I'm in chains. Ah. How do you lead in the midst of a shipwreck? Paul chose to lead well. And what I would love for you to see is this. I would love for you to see that in every situation we see Paul going into, no matter what the circumstances look like, Paul chooses to use those circumstances as an opportunity to point to Jesus. Regardless if they're good or bad circumstances, Paul just recognizes these are the circumstances I can use to point to Jesus. And so if you continue to read through chapter 27, you will see an exciting firsthand account of a shipwreck, what it looked and felt like. You will see that all of the soldiers, the voyagers, and the prisoners make it safely to shore, and this includes Paul. They actually land on the coast of Malta, and it, you know, it's just kind of a crazy, stormy, the ship hits the rocks, breaks all up, they're all grabbing, you know, logs and, and uh, different just parts of the ship, floating in, getting crashed on the shore. That's what it looks like has happened as you read through. Everybody lives. Let's pick it up in Acts 28, verse 1. It says, once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. So that's a bummer for Paul. You know, he, he survived the shipwreck, and he encouraged the men. Everybody survived. He's floating in on some piece of timber. He's still got the shackles on, the chains, or whatever it was. And he lands on the shore, safely crawls up out of the water. He's thinking, whew, the worst is behind me. Let me get warmed by that fire. Ah, I'm bit by a snake, right? And everyone looks at him, bit by a snake. Instantly, what do they do? Judge him. 
Oh, look, he must be a murderer. He's already in chains. God was trying to kill him in the storm and the shipwreck, but apparently he, he got out of that. So now God's going to kill him with a snake, a poisonous snake biting him and killing him. And what's so funny is what they're doing in the first century is what we love to do today, and that is blame the victim. Right? Blame the victim. If the snake bites you, you must have deserved it. If the thing goes wrong, you must have deserved it. If your kid makes a bad decision, you must have, as a parent, deserved it. Are you tracking with me on this? You never do this. Other people do. You never, we never do it. But like, are you trying? This is so, and the reason why it's pervasive, it's this little thing called karma. Karmic thinking is pervasive and has always been pervasive as long as there's been humans. A, a, a bit of karma, by the way, is taught in Christianity that you reap what you sow. The, the, the life that you tend, the garden that you plant, that's what you'll harvest. So we understand there's some wisdom in it as well. But I want you to see that that we live actually in a fallen world and sometimes bad things happen, period. That, that since Eden, and that was a long time ago, since perfection, right, and we, we believe in a restored perfection, we, we do believe in eternity, right, where all things will be made right, that all harms will be healed, but until then, we're in the meantime, and it's just mean sometimes, and so bad things happen, and we, we are all so bought into the karmic system that, yes, when we see victims on the headlines or we, you know, the CNN homepage, there's a, there's a thought that we have, oh, they must have deserved that. The famine, it's because they deserve it. It's, you know, the, the government is, oh, they deserve that. This natural disaster, they must have deserved it. Somebody dies in a jail cell, they must have deserved it. Like, we always just go to that place. And we believe it about ourselves, too. If something bad happens to us, what's the first thing we say? What did I do to deserve this? It's pervasive in our thinking. And the flip side's also true. If good things happen, we think we must have deserved it, right? If things are going great, everything's rosy in my life, I'm zippity doo dot. I must be awesome, right? That's just how, that's just how we go. And, and so we tend, why, why is it, do you think we have a culture that idolizes celebrities? Oh, if they're beautiful and successful and they have a lot of money, they must be awesome, it must be good. So it's pervasive in our thinking. I just want you to understand, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen, period. And the flip side is also true. We have a really good God, a really good Father, who delights in blessing the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? The Bible says, Jesus teaches us this. He says, God sends his blessing of rain and sunshine upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the kind of God we serve. So you just have to understand this, this idea of karmic thinking, it definitely has its limits and it does not define us. In God's economy, God is greater. We recognize sometimes bad things happen, sometimes there's just a blessing, it has nothing to do with how we're doing. But the point that I would love to see you get is that no matter what the circumstances are, it presents an opportunity. Regardless of our circumstance, there's simply an opportunity for us to respond. And Paul, 
Paul uses this opportunity. Paul lives through the storm and the shipwreck, now has a snake hanging from his hand. But look what he does here. It says, Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. I can't tell you how many times that's been true in my life. People just waiting. He's going to swell up or drop dead. Uh, But when they had waited a long time and saw that he was not harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. So Paul's reputation is experiencing a little whiplash in this sort of scenario. He's gone from poor shipwreck prisoner Paul to murderer Paul to to God Paul, okay? And what's interesting is as God Paul, now the whole island of Malta is talking about him. They're talking about this guy that they were sure was a murderer, but then were sure that he's a God. And so everybody in Malta is talking about Paul what is this? It's an opportunity. It's influence. Let's take a look at how Paul's going to use it. It says, near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Pub... Uh, let's call it Publius. Pub- Publius. Safer. <laughs> the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him and laid his hands on him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. Well, that's nice. I want you to see that everyone on the island of Malta was healed because of a storm and a shipwreck, and a snake bite. Now, here's what I want you to think about. If you were coming up with a plan, how do you get the island of Malta totally healed? The last thing you would say is a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake bite. Are you tracking with me? But in God's economy, sometimes the, the, the fastest route from point A to point B is through the shipwreck and the snake bite. And in fact, if there is no shipwreck and snake bite, then there is no healing. And even though we would never come up with a plan like that, I want you to see that God does that again and again and again, right? The Israelites, they thought when they were up against the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other side, they thought they were closest to death they would be before they died. And God knew they were closest to freedom because he was going to provide a way they could not see. You think about Joseph and the story of Joseph? He's got, he was in slavery for years, then he's in jail for years. He's thinking, where is my life going to go? But God knew that was the shortest distance for him to be the second person in command in Egypt. Think about salvation. If you were to come up with a plan for salvation, I don't know what it would look like, but But I promise you, you wouldn't have thought immediately, let me include betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection. And yet that's the shortest distance between point A and point B. And as Jesus goes through the betrayal and he goes through the horror of the crucifixion, and then Jesus is resurrected from the grave, suddenly now salvation is offered to everyone. God delights in doing this, this idea of the shipwreck equals the healing. And so 
I just want to say this. Maybe you've had a storm and a shipwreck in your life. Maybe that's right what you're in the middle of right now. You've crashed and burned. You've lost it all. Man, you really need to hear this, that God has uniquely placed and positioned you to bring healing to others that you never would have reached if the shipwreck hadn't happened. You'd never be on the island of Malta at all. But God knew what he was doing. And what do shipwrecks look like in our lives? I mean, we could, we could whiteboard a quick list. You know, bankruptcy could be a shipwreck, right? Going through separation or divorce, a snake bite. Talking about loss of job, fighting infertility, loss of a loved one. You're wrestling with disease. These are things we never wish happened. We would we'd never wish them on our enemies, let alone wish for our own lives. And yet those are the shipwrecks and the snake bites that God can use to bring healing. Again, every circumstance, regardless of good or bad, every circumstance is simply an opportunity for us to point to Jesus. I'll give you one example. Here at Overlake, um, on June 18th, this actually made headlines. You might have watched it on the news. 36-year-old overlaker named Brandon Springer is a commercial plumber, and he was working on a job in Bellevue when a natural gas line exploded, burning 40% of his body. He was rushed to the ICU at Harborview, where he was told that he would be there for the next three months. He would go through a dozen surgeries before he would get a chance to go home. That's what I would call a shipwreck. And then here's what actually happened. He was in the hospital for less than four weeks, not three months. He got to go home to his wife and his five-year-old daughter 11 days ago. He had only two surgeries, not 12. He had a whole team of people praying for him from all over. Some people kept coming a couple of times a week to encourage him and pray for him. Pastor Pat was one of those that just kept coming and, and caring for him. And the doctors and nurses around him began to call him Miracle Man for how quickly he was healing. He would walk loops around the burn ward there in the ICU, which he later found out inspired other patients on their floor with their own healing process. One patient in particular Brandon spent time encouraging was a 10-year-old boy who was badly burnt as well and having a hard time getting motivated to pursue his own physical therapy. Brandon went back this last Wednesday to encourage him. Friends, this is a story of power and prayer, the power of a healing God, the power of a person to encourage others, even in the midst of a shipwreck, even in the midst of a snake bite. And this horrible accident on June 18th put him in a position to encourage others and to love them with the power of Jesus, from doctors, nurses, surgeons, to other burn victims and their families. And I hear that story, and I just want to ask you a question. Isn't that cool? Isn't it cool the way that Brandon was able to respond and, and, and the healing that God brought and now the platform that Brandon has? Brandon's actually working on writing his testimony. I can't wait to get him up here and share with you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But that is the kind of way that God will take a shipwreck and actually bring redemption and beauty through it. Everything we go through is a platform to reveal Jesus' love and grace to others. All right, let's keep going. Lord, now talking about the shackles portion of this in Acts 28, we'll go in verse 16. It says, when we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. So that's actually nice. It's not like shoved away in a 
dungeon. He has his own condo or apartment or a small home, and he's under house arrest there. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders. He said to them, brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me because they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I asked you to come here today so that we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. So he uses his chains literally as a way to point people to Jesus. Next passage. So a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. By the way, many of you who have studied the Old Testament know that all of the books of the Old Testament, they all point to the person of Jesus Christ. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. I'd love to have you underline that that line. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. Okay, some good stuff here. What we see Paul doing is he rooted himself where he was. Now, he didn't have much of a choice. He, he was under guard. But he op- had an open door policy, and he welcomed everybody who would come. And with everyone who would come, including the Jewish leaders, what did he do? He pointed them to the person of Jesus, right? He was talking about the kingdom. He was talking about all are invited into this, this thing. God's love is big enough for everyone. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. Paul was able to do that because he rooted himself and he had this open door policy. And I just, I wonder what would be sort of change about the way our influence might work if we had some of that same heart that Paul had. Again, if you're filling in the blanks, the first one, what would it look like if for the, the, the next two years, five years, we simply were welcoming to all. We, we were rooted in our home. We're rooted in our neighborhood. The people know where they can find us. They know we're available and we're welcoming to all. Hospitality has always been a mark of the church. So question, how, how hospitable are we? And what would change if we, if we would ratchet up our hospitality and be welcoming to all, have an open door policy? I'll give a couple of shout outs. I know the Schneidlers have opened their home uh, to a gal that's come into the States from the United Kingdom. And they're just saying, hey, come and stay with us. I know uh, the Della Martyrs are opening their home to an intern also coming from England. The Sardis are opening their home to an intern coming up from California. One of the things that we're pitching this summer is uh, summer block parties. And at Overlake, what we want to do is we want to resource you with everything that you need for a successful block party, you know, the flyers and the banners and the cornhole and all that stuff. That's a game. It really is. And, um, and, and you know, you just, do the, you just open up your yard. You open up, the, you know, the, the block and you say, hey, come, let's get to know each other. Let's invest in each other. Let's just be welcoming to all, Right. So, so, I mean, what would change if we really took that seriously as a church? How much more would we be able to do this truth, number two, boldly proclaim the kingdom of God? 
We use our welcoming stance, we use our hospitality to actually talk about Jesus and to point folks to the kingdom. And notice what Paul did not do. You know, Paul didn't boldly debate Roman politics. Paul didn't boldly slander the Roman leaders. He didn't boldly judge the Roman culture. What he did was he, he talked about what Jesus talked about the most, the kingdom of God, a kingdom where all are invited, all are respected, all are loved, all are valued, where there's unity, liberty, joy, and hope, nobody living in condemnation, but everyone living in the life of Jesus, right? Now, the one thing I do want to encourage you with is verse 24 that I had you underline. It says, after Paul spoke to them and and spent a lot of time speaking to them, that some were persuaded and some weren't. I want you to know this. That was true when Jesus preached as well. Some were persuaded. Some some said, yes, I believe in the kingdom. Yes, I want to follow God. And some weren't. I, I just want you to know that Jesus and Paul, they're the greatest two preachers ever. And if their track record was some said yes and some said no, then I don't want you to be discouraged when it happens to you. Okay. I, I don't want to be discouraged. That, that you need to understand that's how it's going to be, that, that when you winsomely and lovingly talk about the Jesus who has saved you, the Jesus that you follow, some will say yes and some will say no. And that's okay. You're not responsible for their response. All right? God loves them. They're on a pathway. Um, what you've done is you've planted the seed. And the big picture concept that I hope you you take out of today is this, that the things that you wish would never happen in your life, the shipwreck and the storm, the snake bite, the shackles, these things can provide the opportunity for you to point people to Jesus, for you to preach the kingdom of God. Paul is a great example of someone. All these things happened that we would never want to have happen. Paul didn't want to have happen in his own life, but he saw them as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. Now, this brings me to sort of how I want to wrap this whole thing up, and it's, it's just with a confession. I have to confess to you, friends, that I do not know what a blessing is. I used to think I knew. I used to be actually quite certain that I knew what a blessing was. And, and you might want to write down my old definition of a blessing. My old definition of a blessing was this, what I prefer. So when things happen in my life that I prefer, things that I would call good, I would value as pleasing to me, I would say, thank you, God, for that blessing. And when things happen that I did not prefer, I would say, like I said earlier, what did I do to deserve this, right? Now, I want you to understand that I have seen sort of this outworking in my life. I certainly see it in the passages we read today. But so often, when the things that I do not prefer happen, it causes me to trust Jesus in a new and unique way. It causes me to depend on him with greater fervency, and desire. And in fact, the worse the circumstance, the greater my dependence on him. Does that make sense? And so even though all this stuff is coming that I don't call blessing, the end result is, man, I am tight with the Lord. And the flip side happens to be unfortunately true. 
that oftentimes when the things I prefer happen to me, things that make my life easy and comfortable, they end up creating distance between me and God because I think, oh, I must be doing pretty good if all this good stuff's happening. And I, I, I think I'm pretty, I, I think I got this, God. You know, thanks, I, I don't need you. And God's up there going, Howerton, I'd answer these prayers if you wouldn't forget me, you know? And, 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 and he's over there going, look, you, you praying against these things, but he, they're the things that are drawing you closer to me. And so which is the blessing? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know what a blessing is. That's the whole point. And, and, and yet, what I do know is that God is a good God. And he does want to bless us. It might not look like what we prefer. But if we'll have Paul's perspective, if we'll use everything as an opportunity to point people to Jesus, then friends, we're going to be on the right road. All right, so why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. And Jesus, I do, maybe I don't know what a blessing is, Lord, but I know that you do know what they are. And so I pray blessing over Overlake. I pray blessing over my brothers and sisters. I pray blessing because I know that, that we want what you want. We, we want to be blessed by you. We want to be drawn closer to you. We want our lives to, to look a lot like Paul's life, that no matter what's going on in our life, circumstances good or bad, storms, shipwrecks, snake bites, what we want to do is we, we want to be close to you, intimate with you. We want to point others to you. We want to see your kingdom revealed. And so Jesus, would you bring us those kind of blessings? Would you allow us to be that kind of courageous? And Jesus, we just, we want you to receive glory from our lives. So would you just take us, would you meet us, do the work in us that you need to do, and allow our lives to point others to you. We pray this in your precious name, amen.